Thanks very much, Carl. Uh, and I've got to say that it is very encouraging to see so many friendly faces from both congregations here tonight. Uh, it's wonderful um, to be with you and to open up God's word together. Uh, let me begin in prayer. Our loving God, we ask that you would bless us tonight as we look at your word, that by your spirit, that you'd show us what is good and right in your sight and lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, I want to start by uh, saying to you that I am not going to do this passage justice tonight. Uh, and that's not me being humble. Uh, it's not being uh, down about my preaching ability necessarily. It's just to say that this passage is a big one. It's not just a, a long read. It's not just dramatically intense. It's not just pivotal historically. It's not just rich theologically. It's not just profound spiritually. Really, it's all of those things and more. Because this passage, together with the passage just before it, uh, the events of the Passover, uh, you might say uh, like the climax of the whole Exodus story. And that's a big deal. If you can cast your minds all the way back to the start of this series in Exodus, and I know that this series has been a little bit disjointed, but you might be able to remember that I made the point then that it would be near impossible to overstate the importance of the book of Exodus and the events that it recalls. There's something about this epic story of struggle and rescue, of, of oppression and deliverance of evil and good that resonates with the human plight. And not just then, but now. That even though this story, which is now thousands of years old, even though it's an ancient story, it can connect with us on so many levels. The outrage of injustice, the brutality of power struggles, the stubborn pride of the oppressor, the doubt and the disillusionment of the oppressed, the desperate appeal to the divine for deliverance, the unlikely instrument of redemption, and then, of course, the rescue itself. Now, that's what I said back in, in week one, or words to that effect. And now, here we are. We've reached the climax of the amazing and sometimes shocking series of events that sees the Israelites finally freed from more than four centuries of slavery in ancient Egypt. Yeah, this is a big moment. In history, in scripture, and it's, it's one that reverberates then right through the Bible. And it sets up a trajectory that leads all the way to Christ and to an even greater rescue accomplished by Jesus, Christians believe, who fulfilled this ancient story. And not just in one or two ways, but in many, many ways. This ancient story points us to Jesus 
And Jesus fulfills this ancient story such that we who follow Jesus today can rightly be called Exodus people. People of the Exodus. Of the true and greater Exodus, led by the true and greater Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ. And hence we called this series, One God, One People, One Rescue. Uh, One pastor and theologian puts it uh, like this. He says, the whole story of the Christian life is effectively an Exodus story in a different key. He explains, even to this day, when we take the Lord's Supper or baptise a person or disciple a person or teach the gospel or talk about resurrection, we are actually doing Exodus-like things. So the Lord's Supper echoes the communion meal that the Israelites shared on the night of the first Passover. Our baptism into the Christian life, in a sense, echoes the experience that the Israelites had when they passed through the Red Sea to freedom. And like the Israelites, our future hope is all tied up with the promise that we too will one day reach a land flowing with milk and honey, but an infinitely greater promised land when Christ returns to make all things new. The whole story of the Christian life is effectively an Exodus story in a different key. And so what we've been looking at in this series, disjointed though it's been, is actually massive in our understanding of all of the Old Testament and actually of everything that Scripture is telling us about what Jesus has done and of who we are in him. But that is getting a little bit ahead of myself. But we do need to spend some time connecting with the immediate context here, the original events and circumstances as they're recalled in this passage, the first exodus. And there are so many twists and turns in this passage, so many passing details that we could focus on. But I want to start by saying that the Hebrew people, the Israelites, at this point, are a traumatised people. I mean, the negotiations, if we could call it that, between Moses and Pharaoh and God that have led to this point in the story have been long and arduous and confronting and downright terrifying at times. To read through the accounts of the ten plagues, it's a bit like riding a roller coaster of devastation. The Israelites were certainly protected by God from the worst of it, but they would not have been unaffected. And as Moses and Aaron are kind of toing and froing with Pharaoh, that the cycle of hope and despair surely would have taken its toll on the Israelites. And that's on top of the the baseline oppression and cruelty that they're suffering in Egypt just as slaves. I mean, this is a group of people that have never not known slavery. And now, to be sure, they're on the cusp of freedom, but it's been a traumatic process to get to this point. 
But perhaps the, the more striking thing about this passage is that at one level, it didn't actually really need to happen. I mean, Pharaoh has let the people go, we're told, in chapter 13, verse 17. The final plague, the Passover, which had resulted in the death of all of Egypt's firstborn, including Pharaoh's own son, had finally broken Pharaoh's resolve and he'd relented, we're told. In the end, the Egyptians uh, really couldn't usher the Israelites out of Egypt fast enough, fearing that if they stayed, there'd be more death and more destruction. But as we heard, it's not over yet. The people are out, but they're not yet free. And there's one or two uh, fairly major dips in this roller coaster still to play out. So from chapter 13, verse 17... Uh, when Pharaoh let the people go, God didn't lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer. For God thought, if the people face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. And so God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness and towards the Red Sea. And this is interesting. Because there was evidently a nearer way of escape a quicker path to freedom through the land of the Philistines. But God, not trusting the resolve now of his own people, leads them another way, into the wilderness and towards the Red Sea. And meanwhile, we discover that Pharaoh and his officials are now starting to have regrets. At what looked like a humbling of Pharaoh's heart, turns out to be only a fleeting break in his resolve. What have we done, the Egyptians say, to let Israel out of our service? Uh, in Pharaoh's case, not even a judgment so devastating as the loss of his own son will cause him to finally listen to God. Out of greed... Out of pride, the Egyptians want their slaves back. And so the chase is on. From verse 6 of chapter 14. So Pharaoh and his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 picket chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the Israelites who were going out boldly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his chariot drivers and the army. They overtook them, camped by the sea at Pi-Haharoth in front of baal Zephon. And you know, the Egyptians uh, must have been kind of amazed, that maybe amused from what uh, from their point of view, would have seemed, I guess, like an incredible stroke of luck. That the Israelites, by taking this alternative route, uh, led them to the edge of the Red Sea. They basically backed themselves now into a corner. This is a dead end. It's a trap. With Pharaoh's great army now closing in, the recapture of Israel seems inevitable. Except that Moses already knew that this was going to happen. The Lord had said to him, 
uh, read it here in chapter 14, verse 3, that Pharaoh is going to survey this situation and when he does, he's going to conclude that the Israelites have been wandering aimlessly in the land and that the wilderness has now closed them in, essentially that he's got them. But, God says to Moses, that's not the way this is going to end. And so armed with that knowledge from God, now Moses kind of has a moment in this passage, a moment of real conviction and courage where in a way he becomes the leader that he was always meant to be. And that's a good thing because by now the Israelites are freaking out. As Pharaoh drew near, we're told, this is uh, chapter 14, verse 10, the Israelites, they look back and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us for bringing us out of Egypt? Well, things must have looked pretty bad for the Israelites to regret leaving Egypt. But then Moses says to the people in verse 13, do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you this day. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you won't see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to keep still. Now that is a real brave heart, William Wallace moment except it's not a call to fight. It's a call to trust and a call to believe and a call to stand firm in the Lord. And there's good reason to trust, isn't there? I mean, I have been asking us to kind of empathise, I guess, with the Israelites. They're traumatised they're depleted, they're scared and now they find themselves trapped, it seems, between the Red Sea and the advancing Egyptian army but it's not as if they're waiting for God to show up, is it? I mean, 400 years or thereabouts, the Israelite people have been slaves in Egypt, no doubt wondering where God is, what he's doing, when is he going to act? And now there's no doubt that God is here. He has heard the cries of his people. He is doing something. But really, God, hemmed in by the Red Sea on the one hand and the Egyptian army on the other, is this really what it's all come to? I think it's a question that any of us would have been asking if we'd been there. And actually, it's a question that we still ask of God, isn't it? When we reach an apparent dead end, an impossible situation, and we're suffering, and we're exhausted, and we just can't see any way through it. I mean, I think it's true to say that to follow Jesus eventually is to know this kind of dilemma. And part of the reason it can be so painful to find ourselves in, in a kind of spiritual impasse 
like this is that often we feel that actually it's faith that has brought us here. I mean, the Israelites were kind of slow off the mark, to be sure, but by the 10th plague, they were all in. I mean, they could see that God was doing something. Finally, after centuries of struggle for them, they could now taste the freedom. But what's going on here? You might recall uh, way back in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses was visited by God at the burning bush and God calls him into his service to be the one who would lead this mighty Exodus. Well, Moses was not terribly enthusiastic about the idea. In fact, he counted God's offer. That wasn't really an offer. With excuse after excuse until basically his excuses run out, Moses can't object to God any longer. He is going to do this thing. But in the middle of that encounter with God on Mount Horeb, and in the midst of all of Moses' excuses and attempts to bargain with God, God says to Moses, I will be with you. In chapter 3, verse 12, the Lord says to Moses, 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 I am going to be with you. And this will be the sign for you that it's I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship me on this very mountain. And let's just think about this for a moment. There's a promise here for Moses and there's a future sign. The promise is the presence of God. That God is going to be with him. And the future sign is worship. But one day Moses will return to Mount Horeb, but this time it will be with the redeemed people of Israel and together they will worship the Lord. And that happens. Sadly, we won't get to look at chapter 15 much in this series. We've had to cut it short by one talk. But Exodus chapter 15 is basically a praise and worship session led by Moses with all the Israelites celebrating their redemption and giving glory to God. And Moses hasn't lost sight of that promise. Standing on the shores of the Red Sea, or that future sign. In fact, God making good on his promise to be with Moses and the Israelites, despite the apparent helpless situation they've ended up in, it's undeniable in this passage. I mean, we have God leading his people out of Egypt in a huge pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people, we're told. God's active presence here is not in question. Um, Incidentally, this is called a theophany in theological terms a visible manifestation of God's presence. God had done that with Moses at the burning bush. Now his active presence is visible and palpable to all the Israelites and even to the Egyptians. But no one's worshipping yet. The Egyptian army is advancing in a vast sea stands between the Israelite people and Mount Horeb and no one is worshipping it. 
one of the obvious questions that hangs over this passage is simply, why? Why lead the Israelites into this new predicament? Haven't they been through enough? Couldn't God just have led them to the foot of Mount Horeb by the the normal route? I mean, sure, there was concern that if the people feared some opposition in the land of the Philistines, they might change their mind and want to return to Egypt. But that's kind of happened anyway. And God can deal with that. And actually, we could ask this question at many points during the Exodus. Uh, Not why the rescue... I mean, that clearly needed to happen. But for instance, why wait 400 years to do it? Why use the reluctant runaway, Moses? Why the plagues? I mean, it can seem to us, at least on the surface, such a cruel, convoluted process for a rescue, can't it? And yes, now, why after all of that, lead the Israelites into this apparent trap at the edge of the Red Sea. I wonder if you have an answer for that. Well, all of us here now know how this ends because we heard the reading. And perhaps a little oddly, I'm not actually going to focus tonight on the Israelites' passage through the Red Sea to freedom. As important as that is to the story, as astonishing and encouraging as that might have been to meditate on the miraculous turn of events that saw God, through Moses, part the Red Sea to complete the rescue of his people, to crush the Egyptian army and to defeat Pharaoh forever. We heard the account. And I'm not going to revisit it in much detail. Instead, I want to push us actually to think beyond the rescue itself to the reason for the rescue. Because God rescues for a reason. For many reasons, actually. But there's a chief reason. An ultimate reason. An end point. A destination. A goal. And from our point of view, it's worship. Moses was told that one day he would return to Mount Horeb and worship the Lord with his own people. And we were made to worship God too. To know him, yes. To love and to trust him, yes. But ultimately to worship him as the source and sustainer of life and as the only one who can satisfy our thirsty souls. But from God's point of view... The goal here is glory. Listen again to these verses. In chapter 14, verse 4, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And then again from verse 17, Then I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. That's the Israelites. So I will gain glory for myself. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gained glory for myself over Pharaoh 
and all his company, says the Lord. Perhaps the idea of God gaining glory for himself sounds a little self-indulgent or egotistical to you. And you know, if it were anyone else but God here, that would be true. Uh, But as I've heard it put, God is the one being in the whole universe for whom self-exaltation is the most loving thing. The most loving thing that God can do for us is glorify himself. Do you believe that? Because if God is not glorified, then how can we know? How will we see? How will we ever experience the infinite beauty and worth of our Lord and Saviour, who alone is worthy of our allegiance and praise? In short, if God is not glorified, then how will we worship him? The reason God led the Israelites by the roundabout way and not the more direct route, only for them to find themselves trapped in the wilderness at the Red Sea, ultimately was for the glory of his name. And it's not the only answer, but it's also the final answer to the why question of the whole Exodus. Why 400 years? Why Moses? Why the plagues? Why any of it? The answer in the end is for the glory of God. And not in the sense that God needed to become more glorious as if his glory could somehow be improved upon, but in the sense that God might be shown to be what he truly is and has always been. Infinitely worthy of our eternal praise. And you know, that's certainly on show here in the first Exodus. But we don't get to see that fully, in in full colour, until God comes and completes his ultimate redemptive work in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God's glory shines brightest. And the great scandal of the gospel is that when the Christ finally came, it wasn't in the pattern of this world as, as some political powerhouse or some fierce military leader. He came as the suffering servant. God himself comes to deliver his people, but this time not in a contest of wills and not through some grand display of his superior might, but through the cross. Jesus Christ, the true Moses, who comes to lead God's people out of slavery to the promised land. Jesus Christ, the true Passover lamb, whose blood becomes the once for all ransom price that delivers his people from God's judgment and from the enemy's stronghold. And Jesus Christ, who himself descended down into the watery depths of death and of hell so that we who have been baptised into his death might also be raised from the dead, just as he was, to the glory of God the Father and so be given everlasting life in him. That's Romans chapter 6 verse 4. 
And we say praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? This is the reason for the Exodus. That you and I and many, many others would know and worship Jesus. One God, one people, one rescue. Well, clearly this is an important day in the life of our church. Uh, Many of us, no doubt, in the backs of our minds, maybe we'll be thinking about the meeting that's due to happen just after this service where we'll be voting, uh, if all goes ahead, on the future of the formal partnership that currently exists between St Matthews and St Bart's and therefore voting really on the future of the Grace Anglican Network as we know it. And, you know, it might be easy, in a way, to kind of draw some parallels between today's passage and today's decision, right? I mean, I want to be clear that it's purely a matter of coincidence that we happen to be at the end of our Exodus series on the same day that we're voting on whether or not to leave our covenant arrangement with St Matt's. And I'm not necessarily saying that those connections couldn't or shouldn't be made at some level, but I'm quite happy to leave that up to you and God. Because I think it's not the decision today that's just the important thing, though clearly it is important. Uh, It's the spirit in which that decision is made. It's the heart, if you like, and the intention... The decision's one thing, and one way or another, this church is going to vote tonight, God willing. And I've come to my own place of conviction about that. But whether we leave or whether we stay, may we do it humbly, graciously, in faith and in the pattern of Christ, our Saviour. And above all, may we long to see God work in and through us here at St Bart's for the glory of his name in this place. You know, if there was a Bible passage for tonight, perhaps it would be this. Colossians 3.17 And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.